you're here. So this morning, we are, um, well, let me backtrack a little bit. For the past kind of six or seven weeks, we've really had this sort of mini-series. We've been looking at the uh, death of Jesus, theologically kind of picturing the, the truth about the death of Jesus, kind of culminated on Easter. But last week, we sort of put an end cap on it, and we talked about doubt, all right? We talked about the reality of doubts in our lives. And we used Thomas, right, Thomas, to kind of look at that picture and explore the reality of our doubts. And we talked about how Thomas's doubts and fears were real, and that ours are too. That, that our doubts and fears aren't something we should be afraid of, but instead should be able to, to name and put out there. And we know that God knows our hearts. He knows those things anyway. And we learn that he meets us right in the middle of them. And then the question really is, what is our response? So what's our response to a God who meets us in the middle of our doubts and fears? And Thomas's response to Jesus was, my Lord and my God, it was pure worship. We talked about how we shouldn't pretend they don't exist, but instead should kind of dive into the middle of them and say, God, I need you to meet me in the middle of this because I am struggling, right? And then our response should be pure worship. So as I was thinking about that, I thought this would be a perfect Sunday to sort of, in response to the idea of doubt, talk about assurance, right? Not insurance, although that would be a pretty easy three-part sermon, right? We got uh, your home and your life and your auto or whatever. So, but assurance, right? So uh, we're going to talk about that because at the core, assurance is really about certainty, um, it's about confidence. And, and we're going to look at the book of 1 John because our, our author there, John, is writing to a group of believers that are wrestling with their own salvation. Am I really saved? Right? So he's speaking into their doubts and their fears, and he's giving them a confidence and a certainty about their salvation. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to John chapter, 1 John. Those are the little epistles in the back of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to kind of explore these together. Uh, and, and I'll pray for us, and then I'll give you a little bit of background, and then we'll dive into it. So 1 John chapter 4 will be in verse 13, I think. It's probably as good as any. 13 this morning. So let's take a moment, let's pray. God, we thank you that we can gather in this place and open your word together. God, we thank you that you meet us in the middle of our struggles and our fears and our triumphs and our joys, that you are all in our life, that you know our hearts and our thoughts even before we think them. And God, we know that this morning we gather in this place and you are meeting us in this place. God, your, your presence is all around us and you are dwelling here. And God, we pray that as we open your word, we would encounter you. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you and we pray that you would teach our hearts. So take a moment in your own life and just ask God to teach you something this morning. Whatever else is going on after this, just for the next few moments that God would capture your heart. Just pray that. Pray, God, teach me something this morning. Pray for someone uh, behind you or in front of you. Pray that God would move in them this morning. Even if you don't know their name, as I say each week, just be in the habit of praying for other people. God, we pray that you would be glorified and exalted. This morning is ultimately about worshiping you. Uh, God, you are everything. And we pray that you would be exalted and lifted up in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so before we dive into 1 John, let me give you a little bit of background about uh, 1 John. Now, 1 John, actually all three of the Johns, the epistles 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, were written by John, the son of Zebedee, who also wrote the Gospel of John and Revelation. So that's the John. He was writing really for a specific purpose. He was writing to address two things. First, he was writing to expose and kind of um, 
unveil a lot of untruth around one of the largest heresies in the first two centuries, which was called Gnosticism, right? And I'll give you a little background on that in a minute. And the second reason he was writing was once he exposed the untruth there, he wanted to give confidence to the believers that they were truly saved. So really it's a two-part letter. It's trying to expose untruth about a particular heresy and then give you confidence in your own salvation. Now, Gnosticism is, is a nasty, sort of dangerous heresy that circulated around the church for the first kind of couple, a couple hundred years of its existence. And it's a little bit complicated, but really at its very core, it taught this, that all matter was essentially evil and all spirit was essentially good. And therefore, salvation was the separation of spirit and matter. So salvation was the separation of my spirit from my body because my body was essentially evil. Now, that salvation didn't take place through faith alone in Christ because I didn't, Gnostics didn't believe that Jesus was really fully human because matter was sinful. But salvation took place by having a secret knowledge, right? And that secret knowledge comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is where we get Gnosticism. But if I could attain this secret knowledge taught by a secret teacher, then I was truly saved. And everybody else just sort of thought they were. And these secret teachers would go around to these little towns and they would look at these Christians and they would say, I know you think you're saved, but you're not because you don't have the top secret, double secret knowledge, right? Kind of animal house, double secret probation kind of deal, right? So you don't have that. So you're not really saved. So the Gnostics taught that I had to attain this secret special wisdom in order to truly be saved to separate my life from my body. And it was kind of a massive dividing kind of piece in the church because here's a group of all believers and some are saying, no, I'm really saved. And they're saying, no, no, you're not because I have the special secret knowledge and you don't have it. Well, what is that? Well, it can only be revealed by a special secret teacher. Well, how do I get that? Because that's what I want because I want to make sure I'm saved. So in the church, you've got all these people that aren't quite sure if they're saved. Like, do I have it or do I not have it? How do I know? And it was a, a very dividing heresy. And so John's letter was really to address that, and he addressed that, that kind of false teaching by giving them some assurance that they're really, truly saved. And he does this in a really simple way in 1 John. So his purpose that we're going to see is to expose this heresy and then to give assurance, confidence, certainty in your own salvation. And coming off our conversation of doubt last week, I thought this would be a great picture for us to say, how can I know that I'm really saved? Is it complicated? Is there a simple formula? What's happening here? So we're going to take a look at 1 John chapter 4. Lift out a few things, and I'm going to do them kind of quickly because we have some other things to get to uh, today. And uh, we'll look at these assurances and then see what that, where that leads us. All right, 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. We'll go all the way down through 21. Now we know that we live in him and that he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God... God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, is a liar. Forever, anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, it's kind of wordy. Well, I'm loving this and turning this and doing that. And so I'm going to break it down in some really simple ways. Because what John is doing here is he's trying to paint a picture of confidence. He's trying to say, listen, there are some ways that you can rest assured that you are saved. 
And he gives them this first promise, this sort of overarching promise by which all these assurances sort of fit under. And the promise comes right there in verse 13. We know that we live in him and he in us. So here's the promise, that as followers of Christ, people that have surrendered our lives to Jesus, this is what we can rest assured in, that we live in him and he in us. So our lives are no longer ours. Colossians 3 says that our lives, we have died and our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. So the idea being this, that when I surrender my life to Jesus, he literally takes up residence in me and I dwell in him. Now some versions use the word abide or dwell. This one happens to use the word live. It's all the exact same thing. Live, abide, dwell. It kind of uh, evokes this, this movement, movements of intimacy. There's something that's taking place that's deeper than just knowledge. So as a follower of Christ, when I surrender my heart to Jesus, he dwells in me, he abides in me, he lives in me, and I in him. That's the promise, all right? So he says, this is what it means to follow Christ. It's the greatest thing ever. And here's how you can be assured, because right now you're hearing all these guys say, in order to know you're going to heaven, you have to have top secret knowledge that you don't even know if you have. And so you're constantly wondering, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Did I achieve this? Did I not achieve that? How do I know? How do I know? And so he says this. He goes, here's the promise. Now let me give you some assurances. And there's four that we're going to look at real quickly. All right. The first is this. We know that we live in him, verse 13, and he in us, right, that's the promise, because he has given us his spirit. So here's how we know that we're saved, that he's living in us and we're living in him. He has given us his spirit, which is one of the great promises of what it means to be a follower of Christ. That when we surrender our life to Jesus, he gives us the promised Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit literally takes up residence and dwells in our life. So in Peter's first kind of sermon ever in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit has ascended on the apostles and he's standing in a massive crowd of people. And this is what he says to them. He says in verse 38, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. Peter replied, listen to the cold crowd, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and who all who are far off, and for all whom the Lord our God will call. So he says, listen, the promise of the Holy Spirit, right? is for you as believers. It is for everyone. It is not for those that just have secret knowledge. That if you confess your heart to Jesus, you believe that he is the Lord, that he is the Son of God, you will be saved. Right? So he's saying this. He's going, this promise, this assurance comes with the idea that you get the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to make something clear here. This is not a two-stage kind of gift process of the Spirit. You know, some, teaches, some churches teach that you don't actually have the Holy Spirit until you can manifest a certain gift or a certain gifting. The reality of what Scripture teaches is that everyone that professes faith in Christ gets the Holy Spirit. It is the free gift. And it is a gift for all those, even those that are far off, everyone who the Lord would call to himself. So he's saying this. This is what John's essentially saying. You don't have to have some kind of secret knowledge. All right? All you have to do is give your life to Jesus. And the promised Holy Spirit is given to you. He's breaking everything down in really simple ways. Okay, so he's saying, so the first thing is this. Look, we know that he's in us and us in him because he's given us his spirit. The second one says this. Keep going. And we have seen and testify the Father has sent his Son as the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he lives in God. So he's saying number two reason that we know that we live in him and he lives in us is that we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. No more secret knowledge. You don't have to have some kind of, some super kind of knowledge of the law or some kind of knowledge of the cosmos and the universe. The reality is that if you acknowledge Jesus Christ as God's son, right, 
then you can rest assured that he dwells in you and you and him. Because listen to what John says. He says, listen to what we've told you. That Jesus, that God sent his son Jesus to be the savior of the world, right? And that if anyone acknowledges him as God's son, then God lives in him and he lives in God. The idea being this, there's not some kind of crazy secret formula. Scripture is very clear about this. What does it mean to be saved? Romans 10, 9. That if I believe in my heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with my mouth, he was raised from the dead. I will be saved. That's what it means. John 17, 3 says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, God, and, the only, and your only son, Jesus, whom you sent. The secret formula for salvation in Scripture is confessing and knowing who Christ is. Right? It's not a series of hoops, not a series of prayers, not a series of classes. It's a public proclamation of who Jesus is, the reality. And he says, he is the son of God, and if you acknowledge that, saved. Now you got to understand this. This is really important because all these guys over here were saying, I've been in church most of my life, right? Or at least for the, the time that the church has been in existence here. And, and I thought I was saved, but I'm not so sure because people are walking in my life going, you're not really saved. And John says, listen, I want you to have confidence in your salvation. And I think at some point in time, every one of us, if we've been real honest, would say, how do I know? Like, how do I know that it really took like when I was in seventh grade, I gave my life to Christ at camp, and was that good enough, or do I have to do that every year? I mean, how does this work? And what John is saying is, look, the, the promise of God is that he lives in us and us in him, and it's simple. He gives us his spirit, and if we acknowledge him, these are assurances that he's, we shouldn't have to question that. Because by acknowledging, right, that Jesus is Lord, we are pronouncing that he is Savior of the world, right? So this is what John is saying. He's going, look, these are some simple things. He goes on to say a third one. He says, listen. God lives him and he lives God. Verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in God, whoever lives in God and God in him. So we know and rely on the love that God has for us. So we know that we live in him and he lives in us because we know and rely on God's love. Two key words there. Know and rely. No, the first one. So one of the assurances we have that we're saved, that we could claim that, is that we know God's love. And John's not talking about a knowledge, a factual knowledge, because I can't stand up here and say, hey, look, this is what God's love looks like, right? It's this, this, and this, and then you go, oh, I get it, that makes sense, okay, I believe in that now. God's love is experiential. It's something that we have to actually kind of get, and it's demonstrated through Christ, right? So he's saying we know and we rely on this love. And the idea of relying kind of evokes this understanding of trust. Because I know what Christ has done for me. I know the sacrifice on the cross. And I know that he was raised from the dead. And I know that God loves me even though I'm a disaster. I rely on that truth. I know and rely on God's love. My favorite picture of this comes in Psalm 63. And Psalm 63 is an interesting psalm because David has already been anointed as king. But nobody wants him to really kind of step into that role. And they're trying to kill him. And so he, at the hands of this guy named Absalom, he flees into the wilderness, right? And they try and capture and kill him. And he feels like the world's abandoned him and God has abandoned him. And this is what he says to the Lord in Psalm 63.3. He says this, God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. And because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you, and I will praise you as long as I live. What David is saying is this. I am huddled in the wilderness, afraid for my life. But listen, I have seen you, God, in your sanctuary. In other words, I have seen you in your magnificent ways. I have seen your love demonstrated. I have beheld your power and your glory. 
right? He's, this is what he's saying. I have beheld your power and glory. I have seen you move, right? And even though right now I feel alone and I feel abandoned, I've seen you move, and therefore I will trust you, that my lips will glorify you. One of the great things, one of the great tragedies, I think, of our Christian life, or at least mine, is my short-term memory. When it comes to trusting and believing and knowing God and even relying on his love, my memory is ridiculously short. The moment life takes a hiccup, a bump, a little turn, a little adjustment or whatever, I forget all the amazing ways that God has provided for me over the past 20 years, right? Five, okay, 25 years. Forget that. Our memory's short, And this is what John's saying. John's saying, look, you know God's love. You saw it demonstrated on the cross. In fact, you've experienced it when he saved you. Don't let somebody else tell you that's not real. Right? Trust and rely on it. Have a memory that remembers where God brought you from. Most of us sitting in here right now, if we were really honest, if we were left up to our own devices and our own ways coming out of college or wherever, we would be destined for destruction. But God stepped in, rescued us. And we tend to forget that. And we let other people speak into our lives saying, oh, surely you're not really saved. Or surely you're not a real believer. Surely your doubt or your lack of faith means that God's displeased with you. Remember? But we know God's love. Man, he loved me so much he gave his son. And I remember that moment where I was saved. And I remember that moment of crisis where he never left me. And I remember the feeling of being protected So I'm not going to let the lie of the world, whether it's a voice of a person or a circumstance, speak into me and tell me that that doesn't exist. Because I know it, and I'm going to rely upon it. So he says, you want an assurance? Remember what God has done and have a memory. He's looking at these believers saying, God has saved you. Don't you remember that moment when you gave your life to him? So he goes on, last one. He says this. He says, we love, verse 19, because God loved us first. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And you give us this command, whoever loves God must love his brother. So we know that we live, abide, dwell in him, and he in us, because we love one another. And the simple kind of fact about this is, it's not the idea that when we love one another, we love our brother, our sister, we love people, that God is pleased with us and then comes and dwells in us. Right? It's not the means by which salvation happens. It's an external evidence. It's an assurance. Because when we give our life to Jesus, the way that we see the world changes. When you surrender your life authentically to Christ, you begin to see people differently. That's the assurance. I no longer see people as just, you know, inconveniences. I no longer see people based on their things, their skin color, their, their kind of demographics, their socioeconomic status, where they stand. Homeless, not homeless, whatever. I see people through the eyes of Christ. God begins to change our hearts. And what what John is saying is he's saying, listen, when you give your life to Christ, it changes the way you see people. Because you begin to see the world through Christ's eyes. That's an evidence that God is moving in you. It's an evidence that you're saved. You see people differently. You love each other differently. Right? And these, these uh, Gnostics were coming in saying, you're not saved, really, and so until you are, you can't associate with us. Because we are the only ones that are truly saved. And what John's saying is that there's no division like that in people that follow Christ. Because we see each other as heartbeats. And our hearts break for each other. So instead of saying, I'm right and you're wrong, it says, this is what God has done in me and I love you. 
because God loves you. So we've got these sort of four assurances, and they're, they're just really simple things, right? That we know that he abides and dwells and lives in us and us in him because he's given us his spirit. We acknowledge him as son of, as son of God. We know and rely on his love, and we love one another. But see, the kind of important thing that I really want you to see about all this is that these words, live, dwell, abide, are words of intimacy. That you and I were created for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We weren't created to know about God. We were created to know God, right? And this idea of dwelling and abiding and living, it fosters this idea of saying, I am created to have a relationship with God where I can be confident in the fact that I know him and he knows me because he dwells and lives and abides in me and I in him. And it's one of the greatest promises ever. And I think, I think that most of us struggle in this area of our personal relationship with Christ. And there's two main kind of ways that we can foster and deepen and cultivate it. Because like any relationship, it takes cultivation. It takes deepening. It takes effort to say, God, I want to know your heart. I want you to kind of know me intimately. And I want to know you intimately. It's this relationship that says, this is what I know you desire for me. And there's two main ways that we can cultivate and foster our personal relationship with Christ. This idea of abiding and living and dwelling. The first one is prayer, time in prayer. Prayer is our ultimate kind of movement with God. It's not just communication, it's a form of worship. And for most of us, prayer is a fleeting thing that happens, whether it's a pre-meal ritual or something we do before we go to bed, but it's not how we invest in our personal relationship with Christ. Instead, we just bring things and ask Him to solve them. So God, here are my dilemmas. Here are the people around me that are in dilemmas. I lay these out there, solve these, and when I have 